0: Most of our food comes from the plant and animal kingdoms. We can't forget our fungal friends, however. Their yeast gives us beer and bread, their molds make our cheeses delicious, and mushrooms are loved the whole world round. We're visiting Darius Klein at Fritz Creek Fungi to learn how to grow mushrooms, and we're turning those mushrooms into delicious mushroom hand pies. My name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. mushroom has a known and surprisingly recent origin. Button mushrooms, Agaricus bisporus, were first cultivated in France in the early 1700s and are still extremely popular there as the Champignon de Paris. Originally, they were light brown. This variant still exists today as the Cremini mushroom. The white mushroom that dominates the American market today was a chance mutation discovered by a Pennsylvania farmer in 1926. It quickly displaced the brown mushroom, even though the flavor is basically the same. Criminis are generally considered to be a bit firmer and a bit more flavorful, though the difference is subtle. Pennsylvania, incidentally, is the largest mushroom growing state. Kennett Square, a borough in the southeast very close to the borders with Delaware and Maryland, produces 400 million pounds of mushrooms a year, half the U.S. production. Proximity to the south made it an important stop on the Underground Railroad, and after the Civil War, it began to produce carnations, mainly indoors and on raised shelves. Wanting to use the otherwise wasted space under the carnations, a couple of flower producers went to Europe, brought back some champignons, and planted. Not everybody converted to growing the white variety, though, and those who stuck with browns found their market shrinking. During the 60s and 70s, as the eternal war of food fashion raged on, browns began to stage a small comeback, if not in market share, in esteem, along with whole wheat bread, brown rice, and brown sugar. For most of their history, button mushrooms that got too large were considered unsaleable. Small, round mushrooms with a tightly closed cap fetched higher prices, and the older and larger they got, the less anybody was interested. Some anonymous marketing wizard, though, realized sometime in the late 70s or early 80s that if they gave the older, chewier, more intensely flavored, mature brown button mushroom a sexy name, they might be able to charge more. And thus, was born the Portobello. It's a testament to the challenge of writing history that, for such a recent event, no one actually knows who came up with the name or where exactly it derives from. The literal Italian translation is Beautiful Door, and there are various theories about London's Portobello Road or the Portobello House in Panama, but really, no one knows. What is known is that the name sounds exotic and Italian, two things that will always get a look in US supermarkets.
1: My name's Darius Klein. Um, This is Fritz Creek Fungi. It's a very small gourmet mushroom farm that I've been building for the last four or five years and kind of uh, building a mushroom farm and learning how to be a mushroom farmer all at the same
0: time. Have you always had a passion for mushrooms or is it a?
1: No, not always. Uh, It kind of came up about seven or eight years ago and just kind of run with it. Did you
0: start out by foraging and then get into the cultivation or did you start more interested in cultivation than... Yeah,
1: I've been foraging mushrooms for a lot longer. I gotcha. And then a couple of friends of mine have been doing some outdoor mushroom cultivation for years, and that kind of sparked my interest to start studying myself. And uh, it's kind of hard to learn mushroom cultivation in alaska because there's no classes or uh, not very many peers either and so i've read a lot of books and cruised a lot of forums and traveled a bit to meet the people that can help me learn how to do this
0: there's a lot to it it's
1: yeah it's much different than gardening vegetables for instance Um, a lot of people are really excited about mushrooms these days and they oh i really want to learn how to grow mushrooms and then they take a uh, mycology cultivation class from paul stamets or somebody like that and uh, they usually find themselves you know getting into something they weren't expecting right uh, just because a lot of it's very technical i do all of my own lab work here because there are no labs in alaska to produce culture for me so i start all of the mushroom culture on petri dishes I would have to almost get into, like, the life cycle of a mushroom. Get into it.
0: (laughs) This is a nerdy show.
1: Yeah, okay, well. (laughs) So the mushrooms are a fungus, so they're a different kingdom than plants or animals. Right. They don't grow from a seed, they don't follow the life cycle of a plant at all, although it's a fairly simple life cycle when you sort of forget what you know about other life forms and just look at it as a brand new thing. Uh-huh. Um, so basically a mushroom is a network of fiber that grows usually under the ground or sometimes in wood, and it kind of consumes decomposing, dying organic matter, and becomes this single entity that is a big fibrous uh, network of mycelium. Okay. And that is the primary you know, stage of the life cycle. It's usually under the ground, If you turn over a log in the forest and you see, like, a white, you know, webby fiber, that's usually some type of mushroom mycelium that may or may not, you know, actually fruit a mushroom, but that is, you know,
0: fungus. So then the visible mushroom is actually the fruit, and then what, what purpose does that serve?
1: The visible mushroom is its way of trying to reproduce, and so it grows this mushroom with gills, or similar things to release its spores into the air okay. and the spores are not unlike seeds they fly in the air and hopefully find somewhere else to start a new colony
0: of mycelium when you start like a new crop of mushrooms you're starting with spores or are you starting with an already started bit of mycelium or how exactly um, do you start with
1: i start with the combination of culture i buy from somebody else or get from a friend which is live mycelium sometimes i culture from tissue from a mushroom so that'd be called like clone tissue so i would tear a mushroom open and take a little bit of the tissue from the middle and um, grow that on a petri dish. Occasionally, I'll grow from spores.
0: How do they reproduce from spores? Are they like are they like a, an apple where you're not getting something that's like the parent or are they uh, is it sexual reproduction? Is it they are similar? Yeah,
1: they're uh, all the spores are genetically different. Okay. They all have their own genetic identity uh, It takes two spores When a spore like lands somewhere where there's nutrients and water, it'll start to sprout a tail and then if two spores sprout a tail and f- decide that they're genetically compatible, they will actually collaborate to make a complete set of genetics to form a mycelial network. Sounds hot. Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> sexy.
0: <laughs> okay, so that's sort of the overview of the process. Yeah. Now let's talk about the cultivation. Can you show me the, can we, can we look at the?
1: Yeah, definitely. Let's take you in the lab
0: first. That's okay. Probably the- thing to do. So it smells kind of fungal.
1: Yeah, you're probably smelling a combination of coffee grounds, grain, mushrooms, isopropyl alcohol which I use a bit of
0: in here just to keep things sterile. So you've got stacks and stacks of petri dishes. What do you use as a a substrate? Is that agar or is it something else? Yeah, petri dish culture
1: is uh, agar, water, a little bit of barley malt for sugar. It's a pretty standard. Media for cultivating fungus. Okay. And so I learned, had to learn how to pour my own petri dishes and sterilize them and right. do all that sort of lab stuff, which keeps me pretty interested. Is this
0: sometimes. something that needs to happen like
1: constantly or is there like a yearly cycle to it? I do petri dishes usually every couple of weeks. Okay. So some of them I'm growing mycelium that's intended for production. Some of it is just me playing around with like cultivating wild species and just experimentation. Working with new strains requires some petri dish work and developing new strains. So, how many strains do you have in production right now? Uh, about five. There's about 200 cultivatable species of mushroom. Okay. And I've gotten really good at about three. Okay. Which ones are those? oysters, lion's mane, and bear's tooth, which are pretty similar, and shiitakes. Shiitakes are a little bit harder to grow, but the quality of the mushroom is so amazing that I'm always striving to kind of grow more of them and do better work with them. They are really (laughs) good. Interestingly, I've done a lot better cultivating them outside than I have in the mushroom farm. I don't know why that is, but I've kind of... When I first started trying to grow them, I would do these really well-calculated projects, and they weren't when they wouldn't work out so well. I would like throw them in the yard, and you know, check on them a week later, and there'd be just mushrooms everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I guess that did the trick. So, awesome.
0: so what's all this? Uh, you've got a bunch of jars sort of hanging out on the shelf. Is that what looks like maybe some barley?
1: These are jars of uh, rye berries. Oh, okay. I'm experimenting with some barley right now. It's just a way of expanding the mycelium a bit, so I'll take a a bit of tissue out of a petri dish and plunk it into a jar of wet grain, basically, and let that mycelium grow through the grain. It's a really rich media, so it grows really fast.
0: Is that like a little piece of a mushroom, or is that just something else? That is a piece
1: of mycelium out of a petri dish. Okay. Once it finishes colonizing, it looks like that.
0: It's all white and it looks like, I mean, it looks exactly like a jar of mold.
1: Sure does. Mold is also in the fungus exactly. kingdom, so...
0: Yeah. And then, oh, what are what are those that are like a solid chunk that those almost look are like turtled milk? These are turkey tail. This is a medicinal mushroom. Uh-huh.
1: You can't eat it, but it's um, good for making uh, health, really healthy teas and tinctures with.
0: And it's dramatically different in structure than the other one.
1: Yeah, they have a lot of different forms. Some different colors...
0: So how many different varieties are you experimenting with in here right now?
1: Probably 20 or so. Oh, you got a handy list up there. Yeah, the list on the wall is um, ones that, you know, I've kind of assigned a culture number to and seem like they're worthwhile working with. And then there's probably a half dozen or so other ones that I haven't decided if they're worth playing with or
0: not. And so is all the gear, is that uh, just climate control? Is it humidity control?
1: Uh, some of it. This There's a uh, filter in here that scrubs the air. It's actually kind of what makes this a mycology lab, is okay. that tool. And so it sucks air in the top and blows wind through this really thick pleated paper filter across the bench and creates a clean air bubble. So anytime I open a petri dish or a jar, normally it would just contaminate with some spore or... It seems strange to a lot of people why you have to, like, do sterile work just to grow mushrooms when they grow in the woods. Having a really clean space and really clean growing media allows me to, you know, expand the mycelium bigger without any trouble before I throw it out into the world.
0: And so do all of the cultivated mushrooms that you grow start out in here? Mm Mm-hmm. And how long do they live in here before they go out into their final home?
1: Usually about a month, maybe six weeks, depending on the species. So I grow the mycelium on grain. Once it's grown through the grain, I'll transfer it to uh, bags that are full of, um, usually wood chips is primarily what I actually fruit the mushrooms on, is chipped alder, and then uh, spent coffee grounds. Oh,
0: really? Well, where do you find those around here?
1: Yeah, it's uh, (laughs) one of the biggest waste (laughs) streams. They say 0.2% of coffee actually gets consumed and the rest of it generally goes in a dumpster. And so for mushroom farmers, coffee grounds is like the holy grail of nitrogen supplement. And of course, coffee shops tend to use extremely high quality products. The coffee shop that I'm getting my coffee grounds from happens to be fair trade organic coffee grounds. So I have an extremely clean waste stream that I'm using for supplementation to kind of produce more mushrooms grows really big mushrooms so i've gone with it
0: so you just run the alder through a chipper and call it good Mm Mm-hmm.
1: yeah there's a lot of alder cut around here in the spring yeah i drive around the neighborhood and usually i can find enough alder for a year within a mile of the mushroom farm it's nice to use things that are free you know that's definitely work collecting harvesting chipping hauling coffee buckets all summer is a lot of work. So when I say free, I don't mean really free, but saves money.
0: It, it makes the profit margin a little
1: bit nicer. A little bit, yeah. All of this mycelium produces heat, um, just like a compost pile would produce heat. Uh huh. So all of these containers that I have with mycelium growing in them are, are constantly getting warmer. And so the container can get too hot the entire building can get too hot the labs kind of like always hot it'll be 40 degrees outside and it'll be 80 in there wow and the fans running and it's just because of all of that thermogenesis from all of the biological activity is really surprising
0: we're falling down on the job we're being outstripped in a very important culinary category by our brethren in the Anglosphere, the Brits and the Australians. They make a lot of pies. And by pies, I don't mean like apple pies and deep dish pies and cherry pies and chocolate pies, although these certainly can be that. I am specifically talking about hand pies. Little enclosed bits of dough filled with various yummy savory things that make basically the perfect carry-with-you-everywhere lunch. It's the kind of thing you can bring with you to work or wherever and you've got a really handy, really tasty, really easy to eat lunch just sitting there. They're super easy to make, and I don't know why, for the life of me, why don't we do this? Because these things are amazing. Now, of course, there are, obviously, we aren't totally bereft of of hand pies. Michigan lays claim to the pasty, which is a variant of the original Cornish pasty from Cornwall. South Louisiana, or in Louisiana in general, there's the Natchitoches meat pie, which is a specific kind of combination of ground meat and spices and stuff like that. It's very delicious and everything, but neither of those really get much beyond the standard fillings. Here, closer to home, the Russian community is in love with piroshkis, which is also a hand pie. In fact, pretty much anywhere in the world, a lot of places do. You know, there's the South American empanada, which are also amazing. Um, In the Middle East, there's uh, the variously titled samosas, Well, those are Indian, but you also find the same term used in certain countries in the Middle East. Or sambusas sometimes. I mean, an egg roll is kind of like a hand pie, although I would say even uh, like the bao, the Chinese steamed dumplings, are even more like a hand pie. Stuff enclosed in dough is like a super classic thing that you can carry around that's simple to eat on the street when you're walking around, if you're taking a break at work, whatever. You can fill them with anything. I just can't for the life of me understand why there isn't like A national fast food chain that only sells hand pies. I don't get it. I wish there was. I would frequent them. Somebody out there, please hear my cries. We need pies. But today I'm going to make pie. Uh, And I'm going to make a mushroom hand pie. And it'll use two different kinds of mushrooms. I'm going to use regular buttons for the base. The base is going to be a really classic way to make your mushrooms last a little longer called duxelles. And all it really is is mushrooms that are cooked with a little onion and a little butter and a little garlic for a long time until they're totally dry. You can use them in uh, a lot of different preparations. The most famous one right off the top of my head that I can think of is they are traditionally wrapped around the filet, the tenderloin, in a beef wellington. And then I'm going to make a, uh, I'm just going to saute some some of the oyster mushrooms and that'll be my filling. I'm going to add a little cream just to give it a little bit of a binder. And it's going to be real simple. And I'm very excited because I love pies. You can put anything into them. You know, beef stew, curry, all sorts of beans, chili. If it's a leftover, you can put it in a pie. Cheese and onion. You can make breakfast ones with eggs. So many different things you can put in them. And they're, and they're all delicious because who doesn't love pie dough? And who doesn't love tasty stuff put into pie dough? I would say broadly, there are two schools of, of hand pie making There are the yeasted doughs, and then there are the pastry doughs. Piroshkis are usually a yeast dough. Empanadas sometimes are yeast and sometimes are flaky pastry, but more of the empanada recipes that I have seen are yeast-raised doughs. The Chinese bao, if you want to consider those a hand pie, they're probably, they're close enough that for our purposes, it's okay to talk about them in this context. Those are yeasted doughs. That's sort of the one category. And then the other category is pastry dough. You know, a a typical short crust pastry dough, like a regular pie crust is. Sometimes they'll be enriched with eggs. More often than not, though, they're just a straight, no eggs, just flour, salt, butter, or shortening, or lard, and uh, water. And that is the kind that I'm going to make today. I'm just a little more familiar with it. It's just a different style of doing things. Probably one of these days, we'll make a yeasted dough. Maybe I can find... Somebody to show me how to make piroshki. But today, we're going to make a, a regular, this is a straight pie dough. This is, this is the bog standard, simplest possible pie dough that it could be. This is going to be a 3 to one pie dough. That means it's a ratio. Three parts flour, two parts butter, one part-ish water. Because water can vary based on the water content of the flour and of the butter. So I, I measure out one part water, and then sometimes I have to use it all, sometimes I don't use it all. Sometimes I have to add a little more, you just kind of kind of go by the consistency of the, of the pie dough. So I've got 300 grams. I know you guys are going to get mad at me because I'm using grams, but I mean, I'm not going to do a bunch of complicated math. Trust me, it's so much easier to scale recipes up and down if you're using the metric system. It just makes your life so much simpler. For many years, I made my pie dough by hand. There's nothing wrong with it. It actually comes out a little bit better, I think. Probably the best way to do it. But I'm gonna make it today in the food processor because I'm feeling kind of lazy. It's a very simple technique. It's pretty counterintuitive. It works very well. I don't know if it was developed by the great Kenji Lopez Alt at Serious Eats, but he was certainly, again, one of the popularizers if he wasn't the first one to come up with it. And that's where I learned it from. So I have 300 grams of pastry flour. I have 200 grams of butter nine grams of salt. And I put about a third of my pastry flour in with all of my butter in the food processor, and I'm just going to run it until it turns into a paste. And paste is a little over the top. You don't want it to actually be like a greasy, mushy sort of stuff. You just want it to be thoroughly incorporated, no large chunks of butter. There we go. Now it's a dough. The first time I did it, I was like, this is totally wrong because this is against everything that you learn making pie dough, because now it's like, you haven't even started adding most of the the flour and it's already like a a unified mass and you haven't even added the water yet. What we wind up doing here with this, by processing this bit of the flour a little bit longer, we've developed a strong gluten network. And now we're gonna drop in the remaining flour and just process it until it's incorporated. So that will provide sort of the the, the filling of the, the structure. It'll be like the the siding on the, the wall of a house. You know, we've got the foundation is already built and now we just have to, to uh, cover it up. So I'm just adding the rest of the flour and now I don't process it straight. Now I'm just gonna pulse it. And now, all of a sudden, it's beginning to resemble the classic pie dough. It's starting to look like coarse, wet sand. There are chunks in it, chunks of this butter flour mix. And suddenly, this technique begins to make sense. Measured out, I've got 100 grams of cold water here, and it's possible I might need a little more, it's possible I might need a little less. But I'm in a bowl, i got a wooden spoon, and I'm just gonna add a little at a time and all I'm looking for is for it to come together. As soon as it comes together into a nice ball, then I'm gonna consider that good. And I have not quite added all of the 100 grams of the water. That's maybe three quarters of it. And I can already feel that my dough is quite sticking together very well. It's even a little bit wet but that's okay because the ne- the next thing that will happen is we're going to let it sit and as it sits the flour that's already that's in there is going to absorb all the water and then the after it absorbs the water then the gluten will start to relax and we we will in another hour or so have a finished pie dough so that part of this business is done So these tubs that look like they're full of alder chips, is that what they're full of? These are full of alder chips, <laughs>
1: ready for the next batch.
0: So, so these are just waiting for once they get done in there, then you just dump them into there?
1: Yeah, this alder will get soaked in water to
0: hydrate,
1: and then it gets put in a steam box and pasteurized, steam pasteurized, just to, just to kill any so stuff to that's come, living in the wood. and the, So they don't have to compete against mushrooms that are already there or bacteria or molds right yeah so this is bulk substrate this is what I'll actually be fruiting on home-built steam box oh cool it's run by a little electric boiler pump steam into there it's just insulated so you just put them in right in the totes stick them in there and leave them in for a prescribed amount of time yeah pretty much yeah pump steam into there and pasteurize them it's quite the handy tool for mushroom farming
0: Can, can we take a look at the harvest yeah or at the uh, grow room?
1: Yeah, The fruiting chamber.
0: The fruiting chamber. Right. Grow room's a different thing.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, And it's
0: it looks like a cheese cave.
1: It's a, f- it kind of does look like a cheese cave. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that once before. So it's just a 40 foot, um, they call them reefer trailers. They're, you know, a McCann's. standard tractor truck produce shipping trailer. Right. Used to be refrigerated. Um, and because they're refrigerated, they're insulated. Right. So I got it old because it's from the 80s and kind of retired, so I ripped the refrigeration out. Makes a really nice kind of commercially built chamber that holds some heat and uh, can, can take the abuse of mushroom farming. It's pretty hard to build a fruiting chamber that can handle the humidity.
0: What, what kind of humidity do you have to have?
1: 92 to 99% oh, that's, all the time. Oh, wow. So trying to build a wood building you know, that can handle that's pretty pretty difficult yeah. so buying something that's a little more rugged is pretty convenient
0: so you have basically got like i said it, the first thing i thought of was a cheesecake because it's basically like almost like little flower sacks of substrate i assume on the inside and then yeah. every now and then there's mushrooms popping out how fast do they grow like i'm looking and they all seem to be at different stages i assume you do you harvest continually off the same
1: yeah twice a day twice a day yeah wow um they grow that like once they get they, in there get in here and start to produce they they grow extremely fast once the mycelium has colonized whatever you're growing it on particularly oysters shiitakes are pretty fast too you know once they've kind of consumed all that food the actual reproductive cycle which is growing the actual mushroom can go extremely fast, you know, depending on the temperature, a mushroom can grow from being like the size of a pinhead to like a five or six inch fruit body in less than a week. So it's kind of interesting. I'll I'll I think I know what's going on in here, but it's changing so fast that I'm always, like, constantly surprised. You know, I'll come in one day and it'll be like, oh, it's kind of a slow day, there's not a lot of mushrooms, and the next day I'll be like, oh, there's nothing in there, and I'll walk in and there'll be like, you know, 20 or 30 pounds of oysters falling off the shelf and be like, holy cow, I gotta get to work.
0: So these are all oysters, it looks like? Yeah, that's really all I have in here right now. There's a little bit of lion's mane. Oh, there they are, yeah which which of the wild mushrooms around here have you been at all or have you been at all successful in getting to grow
1: i haven't actually farmed any local genetics i have some wild oyster culture i got really clean culture from uh, shaggy Maine the other day which would be an interesting one to try uh, do they just not like you are you able to grow them in the agar solution, in the, or in the petri dish, and then they just don't yes. take after that? Uh, it's it's mostly getting it from the wild into clean culture. You know, and it's mostly my lack of expertise with doing that particular right. step. There's almost always some kind of bacteria in a wild mushroom. Wow. And you can try to take clone tissue. You can try to get spores to drop into the petri dish. I'm starting to succeed. I've been doing a lot of experiments and getting better and better at it and so i'd imagine in the next couple of years i will be um, growing some uh, wild local genetics oh, that's w- cool. which will be really neat
0: yeah that'd be awesome has anyone ever really been able to cultivate say like a
1: morel people have actually started to figure out how to cultivate wow. them it's a combination of wood chips and ash oh
0: interesting
1: which makes sense seeing as how the black morel typically grows in uh, forest fire right areas right you might have
0: so the prime Borel grounds
1: coming up here, yeah.
0: In the next year or so,
1: definitely. Yeah, and I'd like to try growing them. A lot of wild mushrooms are, um, for instance, uh, boletes, like porcinis. Okay, um, I know, me too. Hedgehogs, um, chanterelles, things like that. They're called mycorrhizal mushrooms. So, they myco means mushroom, rhizal means root, and so they pair up with the root system of some type of host plant, like usually a tree and oh, like a truffle kind of. Yeah, a truffle is a mycorrhizal mushroom as well and because they have that relationship you can't cultivate them without the tree. Right. And so they're as far as cultivation goes, they're mm-hmm. extremely challenging. Most of them most of them no one has ever figured out how to successfully cultivate without actually like transplanting trees. Right that's been a thing with chanterelles where they'll plant a tree next to a tree that has chanterelles growing under it and then dig the tree up and move it to their yard and try to get the chanterelles to come with the tree pretty limited success
0: yeah i've heard of people trying that with truffles obviously truffles truffles, obviously truffles are like the holy grail of of mushrooms and like i don't think anybody's ever really managed to pull it off
1: millions of dollars have been spent on (laughs) harebrained endeavors to try to get truffles to grow in their on their farm and most have failed. Yeah. There are a lot of, um, I think uh, like China is growing truffles now. Oh, really? But when I say truffle, they're not the same. Right. And, but they're, they're tainting the market. Oh, yeah. There's a lot, of, a lot of controversy about truffles.
0: So do you produce year-round?
1: No. Oh. Uh, I could, but... Not a uh, market? Yeah, there's not much of a market. I need a break. And I'm also still building infrastructure. My running water's still got a garden hose between the garden shed and the mushroom farm. So yeah. when it freezes, my motivation goes way down.
2: It's <laughs> <laughs> just
1: like, I'm done.
0: So have you, have you considered that?
1: Selling dried mushrooms? Yeah.
0: Um, Is that more trouble
1: than it's worth? Oysters aren't the greatest mushroom dried and rehydrated for right. food, in my opinion. Uh-huh. It's hard for me to sell something I'm not that excited about. Right. Um, shiitakes are a totally different story yeah I mean that's um, the
0: world famous that is the dried
2: mushroom really in a lot of yeah in a I've, lot of times.
1: I've, I've heard people say they prefer dried uh, shiitakes to fresh ones because they get more of a rich right. flavor you know a little bit of fermentation or something yeah so if i produce more of those then that would be a nice bonus is to be able to just yeah put them away and And tourists often are very interested, but they don't have a kitchen. So right. Kind of like finding little niches to sell them and stuff um, would be a good thing. Doing farmer's market, you kind of have to pull out every trick you got to put some money in the till. Yeah, you got to have everything.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, because I saw
1: you guys do what, kombucha? and Yeah, we sell kombucha, uh, some vinegars. We make uh, kimchi, we grow our own Napa and make our own kimchi pickles. What else? We sell mushroom kits now. Oh, um, kits! Yeah, those have been really uh, popular, actually, and very successful. So
0: I bet. So you just take some of the some of your culture and and mm-hmm. some of your substrate. Are you basically selling one of these little packages? Pretty much. Yeah. Basically,
1: I'm just giving it to them to fruit instead of fruiting it myself. I gotcha. They seem to do really well. So okay. and they're, they're fun. People can so watch the are,
0: mushrooms grow. So if you're doing it at home, uh, what are you, what are your what are your instructions for? one of these deals and you're gonna to try to grow mushrooms at your house what are you looking for uh
1: a shady place temperature's pretty variable um kind of looking for like a shady somewhat humid place like a bathroom a kitchen or under a tree in the summer um something like that
0: because you said do you do you grow do you grow all your shiitakes outside
1: right now there i don't have any growing inside oh,
0: okay um, can we go look at them
1: Yes, right. I, I have done crops inside, and, and you know, the nice thing about growing mushrooms in here is it's controlled so I can get a consistent result. Right. Outside, shiitakes seem to do pretty well in dry weather I've discovered this summer. Oh. Thank God. You know. yeah. but uh,
0: well, Presumably, um, it's a little easier to grow outside. It's not quite so...
1: Yeah, you kind of throw them out and hope for the best, but then <laughs> you know, when the rains come and oh, stuff, yeah. you know, they can get a little bit soggy. Ooh.
0: A half pound, a little more than that, of uh, button mushrooms. I bought a half pound of uh, oyster mushrooms, and I still have a few left, and I'm going to use those in here. But I'm only going to use part of the oysters in the duxelles. I'm mostly, I'm just going to give the, the oysters a light saute, and I'm going to have big chunks of the oysters in with uh, these are oyster mushrooms, not oysters. Big chunks of the oyster mushrooms in with the duxelles in the uh, in the filling. So there's kind of a little bit of a contrast, you know, and it's not just the same flavor all the time. So these are pretty simple to make. The important thing, as with all mushroom cookery, especially with uh, button mushrooms, is that we're going to be getting almost all the water out of them. This uh, particular batch, I'm going to when I when I make the filling, I'm gonna I'm gonna want some cream to go with it. To give it just a little moisture in the filling, I'm not gonna use straight unreduced cream. I want the cream to be kind of thick. I've got probably a half a pint on my stovetop and I'm going to get that reducing and start chopping my mushrooms. Now, you can certainly do these in the food processor. The important thing with Duxelles, you want them to be pretty fine. They don't have to look very nice. You don't have to You don't have to get them into perfect dice or anything, but you do want them to be finely chopped. You don't want big chunks of mushrooms. Got a nice pile of pretty finely chopped mushrooms here. I'm gonna add a little bit of salt. The next step is going to be putting them into cloth and squeezing them to squeeze some of the water out. This'll just mostly speed up our process of drying out the mushrooms in the skillet. a little bit of salt to assist this process and I've got a paper towel here it's not really the best thing to use I'm just gonna load it up and squeeze and quite a bit of water comes out this is only you know like I say maybe a little more than a half pound of mushrooms and I'm getting good third of a cup of liquid out of them. The great secret to particularly button mushrooms is they taste so much better if you get the water out of them. That allows all the mushroom flavor to sort of shine through. Mushroom flavor is what we're after. Okay, so now they're considerably drier. They're sort of compressed. um, And I'm gonna start heating my pan up. I've got a couple of, maybe three tablespoons of butter here. And making duxelles, it's a little bit like caramelizing onions, actually. Um, You're not trying to, it's not, you're not, you don't want to brown them really. Although at the end, they will start to pick up some brown sort of roasty Maillard kind of flavors. But really what you're, what you're only, what you're trying to do is drive off the water, convert any sugars. You know, you'll get a little bit of caramelization on any of the sugars in the mushroom and just give them, you know, that nice sort of deep flavor. Uh, The other main ingredients are going to be onion and garlic, and strictly speaking, it should be a shallot, but I forgot to buy a shallot, and so we're using an onion because I have an onion. Onion's perfectly legitimate, it's just that shallot gives it that that extra je ne sais quoi. Recipes differ a little bit. This is a pretty basic one. Um, You will see occasionally, they'll want you uh, recipes that call for deglazing with brandy. Well, at the very end, it's going to get some parsley but you'll occasionally see them calling for brandy or you know sometimes sometimes they'll call you for you to to simmer some cream in it although usually most of the ones that I've seen ask you to add the cream much later garlic and onion and butter are basically the standards and then you can get you can add things if you want but garlic onions butter and mushrooms is such a potent powerful combination that you don't need anything else unlearning the desire to Put a bunch of stuff in everything is the major milestone as a cook when you realize that simplicity can be the most powerful thing of all i don't want to brown this butter i'm not i'm not sauteing these mushrooms i'm just cooking them real slow i'm going to let some of this water cook out before i add the onions and before i add the garlic because i don't really want them to get too caramelized tasting so you probably don't want to listen to or probably didn't want to listen to about 40 minutes of mushrooms <laughs> very slowly losing their water, but that's about how long it takes total um, to get these guys finished. And I just, I added the garlic just a few minutes ago, um, and just so that I still have like a nice powerful garlic flavor. Um, and I have got... I went out to the garden, I got some parsley, a nice generous handful of parsley, and I have some dill growing next to my parsley too. And uh, dill and mushrooms are a classic flavor combination. And these guys are now done. So I'm going to go ahead and add the cream that I previously reduced. And the last thing I need to do is to saute my oysters, my oyster mushrooms. So i so get my skillet going, hot pan, cold oil, in this case I'm going to use butter. And as always with the butter we'll go just so the butter is good and melted and the foam is beginning to subside but before the butter solids start to brown. This again, this is a pretty big pan because I want to make sure that the water has a place to go. Always have a big enough pan when you saute. Jiggle the pan a little more right at the beginning, just to kind of coat all the mushrooms in a little bit of butter. And now I'm going to let them go because I just want to get a nice, deep, rich brown on one side for sure. And then I'll add it to my cooling duxelles and cream mixture. And then I'll put all of this in the fridge just to let it cool down completely. Before I start rolling out the dough and making my pies, a couple hours later and got my oven preheating to 425. Go ahead and start making some hand pies. Taking out my dough, it's nice and firm, a little bit malleable. Now, as far as shaping goes, you can basically shape these into any sort of shape that you would like. You can do half moons, you can do total rounds, you know, made with two pieces of dough, fold it up into like a little, a little hat or a little crown. You can do squares, you can do triangles, you can roll them like a burrito. It's totally up to you, whatever you like. I am going to do squares today. I thought that I had, somewhere I have a round, a large, like a six inch large round cutter which is a nice size. a pie can't find it so I'm going to do squares squares are very simple Uh, this shape is going to wind up looking a little like a hot pocket which I guess you know technically I was sort of saying earlier that, that we don't really have pies in the US but I mean I guess we technically do have hot pockets and hot pockets are very popular although I don't eat them as much as I did when I was 15 and extremely susceptible to advertising and processed foods which I am less so now Although there are certain of them I still like quite a bit. A generous spoonful amount because I've got a fairly, I got probably uh, say this is about 10 inches by six inches, roughly. I've got some egg wash that I've made with an egg beaten with a little salt and a little bit of cream since I had some. It's just a straight rectangle. And now I'm going to fold it up like a letter over my filling with the egg wash on the sides, tamp it down. And I'll fold the sides in and on top of each other. You can also fold them like this burrito style where you tuck the sides in first and then fold it up. But in this case, I'm just going to, I'm going to have all the folds and all the seams on the outside. Plop it on my parchment paper, on my half sheet pan. Clean up any egg wash, a little pastry flour, roll out the second one. And this dough, it just works so beautifully. I really, really like making pie dough this way. Like I say, it's not quite as uber flaky as uh, if you do it all by hand. If you really want the best flakiest pie dough, doing it by hand the traditional way with a pastry, pastry cutter, I think is still superior. It's harder to work. You know, it's a little more challenging to work. The one big mistake you can make with these things is trying to overfill them, because if you overfill them then you wind up squeezing all the filling out the sides. And that's obviously bad, so don't do that. You can do fancy pleats. You can make these really any way you would like. You can make them dumpling shaped, you know, where the package is on the bottom and the seams on the top and they're all nicely pinched. That was about half of my pie dough is what I started with, and then I've still got some lovely pie dough make a tart or something. Always make extra pie dough. You'll be so happy you did. Onto the sheet pan. Now I'm gonna egg wash the tops, put a little fleur de sel on, and cook them until they're nice and brown, which will probably take 20 minutes or so. Throw them in the oven. Perfect snack, perfect portable lunch, perfect portable dinner, perfect whatever. Y'all, we need to make more of these hand pies. We're bringing them back.
1: Some other ones over there for the oysters.
0: Oh, this is right here. Look at that, shiitakes. Shiitakes growing
1: in the woods. This this alder shelter, you know, this canopy of alders here is really helpful for humidity. And if you have a good source of wood chips grow a lot of shiitakes in your yard.
0: And they have to be, it, they have to be hardwood, right? Uh,
1: they do, yeah. Any,
0: none of the edible mushrooms really grow on like uh, uh, spruce or Typically conifers. not. There are some oysters
1: that can handle a little bit of conifer, but no more than like 20 or 30%. So yeah, you're trying to find alder. It's kind of the end of that sentence because that's all <laughs> we have up here. Like In most places you look for oak. There's a farm in Hawaii that grows really successfully on eucalyptus. Oh, interesting. Um,
0: Does the substrate really affect, does it affect the flavor in the end? It does
1: not. I have had that, you know, people ask me that because I use coffee grounds. Right. Um, The farm I toured in Hawaii that uses eucalyptus was initially really concerned about that because eucalyptus is very aromatic. And as far as anyone can tell, it actually doesn't make much difference. Uh, The only, like, they have a way of kind of disassembling the nutrients. Like, you can grow oyster mushrooms on... Fuel, like spilled diesel or motor oil. Really? And I mean, I'm not. You know, <laughs> You're not advocating for, this, for a but. different purpose. <laughs> like uh, they're they're being used for remediation. You know, for cleaning up oil okay. spills. People are going out and trying to get the mushrooms to suck up all the spilled diesel or whatever. Well, and, I guess
0: that makes sense. I mean, they they consume organic matter and and yeah. diesel actually is it's a carbon. You know? Stuff. Yeah.
1: And it's interesting because <laughs> they actually disassemble the hydrocarbon. Huh. So not only are they, you know, sequestering it and moving it out of the ground, they're also, like, taking it apart back into its elements. Wow. Whereas, you know, traditionally they would plant, like, some type of fast-growing weedy tree in a contamination site to try to suck up all the oil. Yeah. But then the tree is full of oil. Right. And they'll take the tree and cut it down and then burn the tree and then all the oil goes into the atmosphere. Right. So... You know, it moves it, but it doesn't actually deal with it, whereas mushrooms can actually disassemble it. But the reason I brought that up is they just have a way of kind of taking the nutrients and, like, doing what they're going to do with it. And it doesn't really seem to get into the mushroom with the exception of, like, heavy metals. Okay. Um, That's the only, like, big concern with, you know, when I harvest alder, I always make sure it's, you know, back from the road, you know, not on some old junkyard or something, like, from a clean place because metals and things can be found in... Wild mushrooms or any mushrooms that are growing where it's dirty.
0: Huh. But so basically, like one shiitake that's of a particular strain is gonna it's gonna taste like any other shiitake of the exact same strain, no matter where you grow it, no matter what you grow it on. It's all. I mean, this, this is, is
1: not my like a, this, right. This is totally my opinion, right? Um, just based on what I've seen, there could be exceptions. Yeah, I'm not sure, but um, but it's not like wine grapes where you know where you grow
0: it like it totally changes everything
1: (laughs) yeah as far as I can tell it doesn't make a lot of difference interesting Uh, environment and then strain makes a big difference like shiitakes for instance you know people are like oh I love shiitakes there's actually dozens of shiitake strains okay and the ones that people usually get are the production ones you know the ones that have been selected to grow really fast and vigorous right but they're not necessarily the best ones there's some other shiitake strains out there that have better flavor that have way better texture way richer flavor be some really interesting stuff to get into heritage
0: shiitakes mm mm-hmm
1: so this mushroom patch you know it's there's nothing here except a little bit of uh, wood chips kind of shredded up dead leaf You could almost walk right through it and not see it if you weren't looking.
0: Is this pretty much what it always looks like, or is it usually more? It's
1: uh, kind of always like this, but you know, it doesn't, you know, like we're looking at what a dozen or so mature mushrooms, maybe a little bit more. I will cut all these mushrooms and put them in a paper bag and eat them for dinner, and tomorrow there'll be another dozen mushrooms here. Wow. And so this isn't like, you know, weeks of fruition. This is like today. (laughs) Shiitake's grow that fast, huh? It's really surprising. I, every time I come back here, I, I'm kind of amazed. And we've, we've done shiitake projects like this. There's a couple others over there that we started three years ago uh-huh. and have not touched for three years, and we still pick mushrooms off of them. Oh wow! So it's, it's perennial shiitake bed. It seems to pay off really well. They survive the winter, you know, not the fruit body, but the you know the the mycelium in the ground sits there
0: all winter under the snow, and in the spring they just pop right back up. Well, now I definitely want to start growing shiitakes because I have tons of. Mm-hmm. I got a creek that runs right, Diamond Creek runs right through the back corner of our place. and yeah, like, I, It all looks exactly like this. Yep. <laughs>
1: I, I look at this and I wonder why I, sometimes why I even have a mushroom farm, you know? Because <laughs> it's like I'm growing them in the woods, they're just <laughs> growing everywhere. Seems like it would almost be a, a little bit easier just to do it this way all the time. So maybe, yeah. maybe I'll lean more in this
0: direction. <laughs> How many people in Alaska are really cultivating mushrooms on any kind of a commercial scale at all? I think probably about three. So there's you, There's, there's got to be somebody in the
1: valley then. Yeah, I have some friends in Anchorage. So they have a facility, I think it's in Palmer, and um, they're kind of at a similar scale to me from what I got from talking to them. Um, similar knowledge base, similar scale. There's a couple of people that show up at markets now and again, but nobody too, like, regular, uh, he,
0: nobody too, like, consistent. So, yeah, there's not very many. It's interesting because it's such a it's such a small footprint, you know, like, I mean, I was kind of Mm -hmm. expecting when I came out here, I was expecting a little more, you know, like more stuff. Yeah, really. I mean, it's it's a it's a Connex and and the the, Mm -hmm. your your main room and then the little lab. And that's a really it's a pretty small footprint, you know, you don't need. Right. It doesn't look like you'd really need a ton
1: of land or anything. Yeah. The whole thing's like probably 1500 square feet or something like that. Maybe yeah. less. Yeah, maybe less. Yeah. So, I mean, part of that's just that it's a really small mushroom farm, right? Um, in a small town, right? With a small market, right? And I'm, I, I
0: like that.
2: You yeah, know, I don't really want. But I mean, have when I go,
0: you know, when I, when I walk to the farm or to the farmers market and, and I look at your uh, booth, I mean, you've got there's, there's a lot of product there. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like it's not like a skimpy amount. Yeah. Know? So, I mean, you seem to be putting out a reasonable amount of product for. Yeah, you definitely. Know, that space.
1: You know, as I get better at it kind of utilize the space more efficiently, and right. I've gotten to the point where, you know, farmer's market's definitely not enough, and so I'm trying to get to get them out to the restaurants and things like that. Mushrooms have a wild variety of flavors.
0: It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I like
1: the button mushrooms.
0: You know, I like the flavor, it's good. Uh, they're just not cool, because, you know, you don't have to, like, go <laughs> tromping through the woods for hours to get them, or... Yeah, <laughs> right. There's
1: some other mushrooms we've been growing outside. Uh, they're called Kingstriforia. Okay. Um, the garden giant and oh, no, no, um, no, no, no. wine cap, I believe. I've is, heard of uh, wine cap. That's kind of the more culinary name okay. for them. Yeah. And they're really interesting to cultivate because they will not grow in an artificial environment. They actually need like bacteria and things in the soil to thrive. Huh. They taste just like peanuts. I mean really? it's it's you know, not exactly <laughs> the smell's a little bit different, but the flavor is like very almost like a slightly roasted peanut. It's wow. a really fascinating flavor. Huh. They're pretty fun. Yeah, there's some definitely interesting mushrooms out
0: there. You, did you just put these out this year?
1: Yeah, these are old blocks from the mushroom farm. So okay. the cultures actually was laying out here in the snow all winter. And oh, we decided wow. to kind of see if we could you know, and here keep are. it going. And so we sort of chopped it up and spread it out and mixed it with some uh, chipped alder and um, leaves, dead, you know alder leaves from the alder pile and is
0: yeah. this is this just like your personal mushroom stash or a- yeah i don't
1: yeah because I, I haven't i don't I'm, think i've
0: seen any <laughs> shiitakes at your at your stand maybe not m- for a little while yeah okay um and they sell so fast that
1: it's oh, like yeah. a blink of an eye oh okay um, So you got to be there Really. Yeah, I've been saying, like, <laughs> I'm going to eat all these shiitakes. Although I will say there's, like, three pounds in my fridge in a bag that's like,
0: oh, maybe I should take some
1: of these to market, you know. Like, no,
0: I can eat them all. You know? Okay, so you're probably a good person to, to, to ask. Uh, what is, after you've harvested, you know, or you've got the, mus- the mushrooms at your house, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you keep them? How do you keep them the longest and the, at, at the best quality? Paper
1: bag and fridge. Uh, Pretty you know, much. Plastic's kind of bad. The wind of a fridge usually kind of dries them out short answer is paper bag paper bag seems to be the best you know it's it's just that right balance and over a couple weeks they might get a little bit dry right but it's better than them getting like slimy yeah or um uh if you put them in plastic sometimes you'll see white fuzz grow on the mushroom and a lot of people like think it's mold (laughs) it's It's actually not (laughs) it's just the mycelium growing off the mushroom but it definitely doesn't look appealing as far as you know
0: how long can you get a get out of a freshly harvested mushroom
1: uh, well, oysters, you know, are very easy to farm in all ways, but they do kind of have the shortest shelf life of most of the go-to cultivatable mushrooms, okay. uh, but they do okay. Usually a couple weeks. Okay. It's interesting because, you know, a vegetable is like, you know, you want like a carrot to be like as fresh as possible. You know, you want all that freshness to, you know, get straight. But a mushroom, you know, I wouldn't describe the flavor of a mushroom. It's like (laughs) fresh. It's like a savory flavor. Yeah. You know, a week old mushroom to me pretty much tastes the same as a fresh mushroom. Yeah, they've just lost a little bit of water.
0: Yeah, that texture can change. A lot of the character in a mushroom isn't like the same sort of like aromatics, like the nasal sort of stuff that you're breathing. You know that, right? Because like in a vegetable or an herb or something like that dissipates fairly quick in the air. Mm-hmm. The more But like volatile. a mushroom is like, it to me it's like it's it's so much a mouth food. You know, like it's not really about the smell. Yeah. You know, it's just about like putting it in your mouth and you're just like ah, so good. Yeah, it's more of like a. I don't, know how you, I don't. I don't know. You know, food terms, but it's more of like a base kind of. No, no, well, the the usual flavor, the usual flavor that uh, that they give it these days is is umami. Umami. The, yeah, it's a Japanese word, mm-hmm. and it's basically it means savory. Mm-hmm. Um, its purest chemical form actually is MSG, and uh, hmm. mushrooms contain a lot of uh, glutamates in their composition, which mm-hmm. is which is generally considered like the main chemical molecule that imparts that umami flavor. Gotcha. And it was first—it was first identified by a Japanese uh, chemist, I think. In kelp was the first place where he actually isolated it and determined that that was the chemical responsible for that flavor. Interesting. So meats contain a lot of it. A lot of fermented foods contain it. uh, Mushrooms, kelp, Mm -hmm. cheese—you know—anything in that sort of category that has that like mm, that satisfying kind of savory taste to it. Tofu has it. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of beans have have sure. some that, that makes looks sense interesting umami umami what do they what is it what is a lower 48 uh production like a, a larger scale production farm look like
1: like this but bigger okay um do no, they obviously. is most of it still inside or do they do they do more yeah. outside down there yeah not really okay. um usually there's some smaller mushroom farms i've seen that are trying to do kind of seasonal greenhouse production and stuff like that uh-huh. um, so they're using like kind of hoop house type structures and but yeah if you're trying to make a living mushroom farms often move into old warehouses and things okay. you don't really need nice you just need like big right and, and you know it could like have holes in the roof and yeah. it would be perfectly fine for mushroom cultivation for the most part so <laughs> uh there's some places like that and then the only really big mushroom farms are like the button mushroom yeah. farms, and they're a totally different kind of mushroom. They, you know, so all the mushrooms that I grow so far are all um, called primary decomposers. So they okay. eat wood. Okay. They live in the wild on a tree. Okay. And um, uh, so they're, you know, very different than like the button mushroom grows on, you know, compost. And, oh, okay. Uh, they they want something else to kind of break it all down. Some gotcha. some other you know, fungus and bacteria to kind of break it down before they eat it. Uh And so those mushroom farms are like absolutely enormous, massive commercial scale things that basically compost a lot of manure and (laughs) grow a lot of button mushrooms, so. Bees, actually. Oh, really? Worth mentioning, bees love mycelium. Really? I'll leave stuff out and, you know, we have honeybees here on the farm, along with a bunch of other stuff, but uh, sometimes I'll leave mycelium out and it'll just be like a feeding frenzy wow they also love coffee grounds so huh. i have a lot of bee friends around the mushroom farm i need to maybe like work on some screen doors because <laughs> they visit me a lot but they're pretty friendly so yeah. we do all right <laughs>
0: Check the Pantry is produced at the studios of KBBI in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Darius Klein was recorded at Fritz Creek Fungi out East End Road. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebene. This episode is dedicated to Sadie, who for 16 years kept our kitchen floor cleared of tasty tidbits that fell there, and who was always a very good girl. This is the sixth episode of the summer 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
2: Thank you.